You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. All right, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. If you read the Bible on your phone, we recommend the Version Bible app. If you go into there, into the events section, you can actually find live notes. So it's a great way for you to interact with the sermon. It's a great way for you to um, share things on there, take notes, all that. This morning, we're beginning a new series. The series is called Church Matters, and that's kind of a play on words, and you'll see why that is as we go on. Uh, But this series is going to be four weeks long. It's going to be the entire month of August, basically. We're going to be looking at this, and each week in this series, we're going to be looking at a different aspect of what God designed the church to be and what God designed the church and intends for the church to be about. These things that we're going to look at are mission, that's what we're looking at today, then gospel, then worship and community. So mission, gospel, worship, and community. This morning we're going to be looking at the first of those. See, when we look at the Bible, here's the thing we see. We see that church matters. It matters to God, and it should matter to us. We see it clearly matters to the world. God loves the church. He calls it his bride. He wants to marry us, right? And that's what he's going to do ultimately. To God, the church isn't just like an optional support group for those who need a little bit of assistance or a little bit more help. It's not a necessary evil. No, not at all. The church is a vital part of God's plan for His work in your life and in the world. And so our goal with this series is that it would be a time of looking at and considering what God's Word has to say about this topic of the church, who He's called us to be, and it's a time of aligning our hearts and our minds with God's in regard to who He's called us to be as a church and what we're to be about. So this morning, we're going to begin this series by talking about mission, and we're going to begin doing that by looking here in John chapter 17. So we're going to begin by reading John 17, verses 13 through 19. And that reads like this. Jesus is praying. He's praying to the Father. He's praying for his disciples. And he says this. Now I am coming to you. And these things that I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your grand vision for us as not only as individuals, but as people. Thank you, Jesus, that you came for us to redeem us, to save us. Thank you, Lord, that you came seeking us. And Lord, may we be those who cast ourselves upon you. And we pray that this morning, Lord, you would speak to us, that you'd teach us, that we would learn, and that we would grow. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story is told that Jesus... After his death and his resurrection, the Bible tells us that he ascended into heaven. And the story is told that after Jesus ascended into heaven, that uh, he was there, and Moses and Abraham came over, and uh, they were hanging out, and they were having a chat. And they were talking to Jesus, and they said, well, so uh, tell us about your big trip. You know, we know that you went on this mission, so how did things go? And Jesus says, well, you know, it, it went great. I mean, honestly, I mean, some parts of it were very hard, but... All in all, I accomplished what I was sent to do, so it was a success. And they say, oh, that's great. So, so what's next? What's the next step 
in this mission. Jesus says, well, you know, the mission isn't over yet. I mean, I did my part, but now what needs to happen next is everybody in the world needs to know about who I am and, and what I've done for them. And Moses and Abraham said, okay, well, uh, so what's your plan for doing that? Are you going to, like, send out angels and just, or are you just going to, like, plant it in people's minds and they're just going to know about it? And Jesus said, well, well, I guess I've got a plan A and I've got a plan B, right? So plan A is this. I've got these people down there, and I trained them for a couple of years, these last couple of years that I've been down there. And here's my plan. Uh, these guys are going to carry on my mission of revealing God to the world and, and telling everybody about me so that uh, they can believe and be saved. And, and Moses and Abraham were like, okay, well, yeah, that sounds like that could work. Well, these must be some pretty high caliber people that you would have chosen for such a high and lofty task. So uh, why don't you tell us about them? And Jesus says, okay, well, well, they're mostly fishermen. I met them. I was walking by this big lake out there, and uh, I met these fishermen. And I said, hey, why don't you guys come and follow me? And, uh, and so, yeah, they just kind of hung out with me for a few years. And uh, so that's most of them are fishermen. Uh, a couple of them used to be tax collectors. And man, let me tell you. People down there hate paying taxes. They, like, seriously hate these tax collectors. But, you know, one of them, you know, were two tax collectors. And there's some others, you know. There's this one guy. He's a political activist. Used to be called Simon the Zealot. I mean, used to kind of, like, be a almost like a political assassin, really crazy guy. Uh, there's some women, they're, they're mostly normal for the most part, except for uh, one or two who used to be prostitutes and stuff. And, and one, one of my main guys, man, he's a real piece of work, right? His name's Peter. And well, he's kind of temperamental, right? Like, and sometimes it's like one moment he seems like he totally gets it, and the next moment I'm like, have you even been listening to anything I've been saying for the last couple of years? I mean, just the other day, I, I had to call him Satan. I told him to, to go away and to knock it off because he was trying to talk me out of going to the cross and going to Jerusalem. And then, and check this out, that night when I was betrayed and arrested, he, he's standing out there in front of the courthouse and he's, he denied that he even knew me three times in a row. I mean, he felt super bad about it afterwards, but, you know, I had to spend some time with him and really uh, reassure him that I still loved him and I wasn't... Uh, cast him aside or anything, and, and Abraham and Moses are just like jaw dropped, like, what? Like, this is plan A, these guys? And they said, okay, well, well I'm glad you have a plan B, because I don't know if this is going to work out, right? And uh, said, so what's plan B? And Jesus says, no, nah, I was just messing with you guys. I don't have a plan B. That's my only plan, just those guys. And here in John chapter 17, we read about these guys, and we read about this almost commissioning, really. This is one of the most defining moments in Jesus' life and ministry. This scene that is, we read part of here in John chapter 17, it actually starts all the way back in John chapter 13. Six chapters is, covers, John takes six chapters to talk about a few hours of time in Jesus' life and ministry. And I want you to understand this. He dedicates more time to write about this one event, these few hours on one single evening, than he does to talk about anything else that happened in Jesus' entire life. He even spends more time talking about this than he does about Jesus' death and resurrection. For example, he doesn't even write anything about the birth or the childhood of Jesus. But he spends six chapters talking about just what happened over the course of a couple hours on one evening. Now that event is what we call the Last Supper. And John tells us about the events of the Last Supper in great detail. Why is that? Well, here's why. Because it was at this time that Jesus told his disciples something that was going to change their lives. In fact, it would change the, the history of the world. It would change everything. He told them that after this evening, 
Everything was going to change. Because this is the night when he was going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. He would be handed over to the authorities and they would accuse him of being an insurrectionist. They would have him put to death on a Roman cross. The real reason, of course, was because the Jewish authorities were annoyed and threatened by Jesus and they wanted him gone. But of course, all of this happened perfectly in accordance with the plan and the foreknowledge of God. The plan all along is that Jesus would come, sent by the Father, and He would live a sinless life on our behalf, and He would die a sacrificial death for us. And on the cross, God the Father would place all of the guilt, all of the sin of humanity upon Him and judge Him in our place so that we could be pardoned, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved and redeemed and have life everlasting. And Jesus made, he, he's made mention of this to his disciples before, but they didn't, they didn't like to hear about it. Whenever he would bring it up, they would kind of be like, okay, okay, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about something else. They didn't want to imagine life without Jesus. They didn't want to imagine their friend, their teacher, their Lord not being with them. They couldn't imagine how that could be good in any stretch of the imagination. At this dinner now, which we call the Last Supper, Jesus breaks the news to them. He says, tonight, tonight is the night. This is our Last Supper together before I'm going to be crucified. This is what I must do. This is the very reason why I came. And he says, so as I go, I'm passing the baton to you guys. This mission that I've come on, I'm passing it on to you guys. I was given a mission by the Father, Jesus says, and once my part is done... I'm passing it on to you just as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. And you can just try to imagine the sea of emotions that these guys are swimming in as Jesus is telling them on this evening. John spends six chapters talking about this evening. It's burned into his memory. It's etched into his mind. He can't forget it. Every single part, he wants us to know about it. They're feeling fear. They're feeling disappointment. They're feeling anxiety. What is going to happen in the future? We don't know. Is this even going to work? And so what does Jesus do? He prays for them. Now, I read this chapter many times, and even for many years before it really sunk in, and before I could really picture this scene in my mind, here's the scene. They're having dinner together. Jesus is breaking to them this news that they don't really want to hear, and he's trying to convince them this is actually better. This is actually the plan of God for them and for, the, for God's whole mission for the world, and then they're feeling anxiety, and what does he do? He stretches out his hands. He gathers them together, and he prays over them. And what we have here in John chapter 17 is the prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples at this moment when he told them, guys, this is it. I'm leaving and you are going to be the ones who are entrusted with this mission. And here's the essence of Jesus' prayer. I want to just kind of run you through it, give you a couple highlights, which I think really highlight the, the core content of this prayer. In verse 4, Jesus says this. He says, this is the mission you gave me, Lord. Father, you sent me here on a mission. The mission was to glorify you on earth, and I have accomplished what you sent me here to do. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Father, you sent me to make you known to the people, and I've done that. I taught them what you sent me here to teach them. And then verses 13 through 18, Jesus says, Now, Father, I am coming to you. And, and this I say, and here's really the key, he says, this I say, that they may have my joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. And then he says, just as you sent me into the world, so now I send them into the world. I'll tell you what, this text sums up for us almost better than any other text what the Christian mission 
is all about. In fact, the word mission is used by Jesus in this text a total of six times. That's more than in any other single text in this entire book. Six times in this prayer, he uses the word mission. And maybe you say, I don't see the word mission in there. Well, that's because you're not reading in Latin unless you are, in which case you're like, yes, of course, I see it's right there. So he says the Father sent him on a mission, and now Jesus is sending his followers on a mission. You see, the word mission comes from the Latin word missio, which literally means to send. So whenever Jesus is saying, you sent me, now I'm sending them, he's using the word mission, 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 six times. To be on mission means that you have been sent by someone to do something for a purpose. And here's what Jesus is telling us. Not only is he a person who is on a mission, but anyone who comes in contact with him will inevitably also become a person on a mission. I'll say that again. Jesus is telling us here in this prayer, not only is he a person on a mission, but anyone, if you come in contact with him, you will inevitably become a person on a mission. It's been said, and rightly so, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. The church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. At the very heart, at the very essence of what God intends for the church to be is that we are people who have been sent out on a mission from God. The title of today's message is So That They May Have Joy. And there are three things that we learn from this text here in John 17, the prayer of Jesus on the topic of mission and what it means for us as a church in particular, but also for the church in general what it means for us also as individual Christians. We're going to be talking about mission. And there are three things I want you to see. The reason for the mission. Secondly, the problem with the mission. And thirdly, how to engage in the mission. So the reason for the mission, the problem with the mission, and how to engage in the mission. The reason for the mission. I'll give it to you right now. The purpose of this mission is, in one word, joy. You know what church is about? It's about this. It's about joy. That's what it all comes down to. That's what it all boils down to. The answer is joy. That's why the church exists. That's the purpose of the mission of God. It's so that they may have joy. But the question is, who is the they? In other words, who is the joy for? Who is the one who gets the joy as a result of this mission? Well, well, I don't think it's just one. Let me explain. First of all, it's for the joy of those who are on the receiving end of this mission. In other words, those who hear the good news of the gospel. The good news is this, that it's not that you have to go out and find God. It's that God has come and he has sought you in Jesus. He has come. All you need to do is fall forward into his waiting arms. It's not that you have to come to God. It's that God has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. He has come to you to take your place in death and judgment so that you might be saved and redeemed, so that you might receive a new identity and a new destiny. And now you get to walk. That's the promise of the gospel. That you get to walk in this life and beyond, hand in hand with your creator. And he calls you friend. What a joy that is. It's so that they might have joy. And maybe there are even some of you here today and you don't yet know that joy. You haven't taken that step of receiving that gift of salvation and you don't know that joy. Today is the day for you to receive that joy. But in another way, I'll put it this way, the purpose of the mission of God is not only for joy for those who receive the gospel, it's also for the purpose of joy for the heart of God. Joy to the heart of God. Because there are people whom God created who he loves and who he cares about, and it breaks his heart that, they, that any of them would perish. 
It breaks his heart that anyone would walk through this life spiritually lost and confused, hurting themselves in the pursuit of the things which can ultimately only be found in him. Jesus said there is much rejoicing in heaven over every single sinner who repents, every person who turns from what they are doing and pursuing and who receives the grace of God and the salvation that God lovingly offers. And so this mission is about bringing joy to the person who receives the gospel. It's about bringing joy to the heart of God, but that's not all. Look at what Jesus says specifically about the correlation between mission and joy in verse 13. He's speaking to his disciples, these same people to whom he's giving this mission. He's saying, here's the mission. My mission, I'm giving it to you. And here's what he says. I'm giving you this mission. Why? So that you may have my joy fulfilled in you. So that you may have my joy fulfilled in you. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Father, I want these people you have given me, these disciples, I want them to have the same joy that I have. And so in order that they might have my joy, I am giving them my mission. There are two things that you must have in order to have deep, true, and lasting joy. You know what they are? They are hope and purpose. If you don't have hope, and purpose. You will never have pervasive joy that's able to withstand whatever circumstances life, brings in, or life throws your way. But if you have those two things, if you have hope and you have a purpose, then you'll be able to ride all the waves of any storm that come your way and you will never lose that unwavering joy. And here's what happens. When you come in contact with Jesus, that is exactly what you receive. He gives you an incomparable hope. It is hope that shines beyond just this life. It's hope that shines beyond the grave. It's hope for the life to come. And in Jesus, he also gives you something else. He gives you a mission, a mission that is bigger than just yourself. You know, at home, I've been reading The Lord of the Rings to my kids, right? They're nine and seven, so it's been great. We've been lead- reading The Lord of the Rings, and we're now on the last book, The Return of the King, and it's, it's great. And we have a whole bunch of other books that we plan to read after this. But there's a common theme in all these books that my kids want to read. They're all about heroic quests. They're all about adventure. They're all about saving the world. And if you think about that, isn't that what all the greatest stories are really about? They're about world-saving missions, missions to go and redeem and save the world and do something great and change things and, and rescue and overcome evil. Children love these stories innately. You don't have to teach them to love these stories. They love them. But here's the other thing. They believe in them. They believe that it is possible to save the world. And when kids think about their future, they think about their future in these terms. They think about how they want to grow up and they think of their own lives in terms of mission. You see, that's why if you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up, no one will ever say, I want to be the assistant to the regional manager at a medium-sized paper company. They, even though that's a perfectly good job. And it's a, there's honor and there's, there's dignity in those jobs. But for some reason, whenever you ask a kid what they want to be, they always want to be a doctor, an engineer, a, a veterinarian. They want to be a firefighter, a soldier, a policeman. They want to be a president of the United States. Why? They want to do something significant. They want to do something that brings joy to themselves. But you know what they find joy in? They find joy in doing something significant for other people. Running into a burning building and saving people. That's what they dream about doing. Now, why would anyone want to do that? Because there's joy in that. Do you understand? There's joy. There is an inseparable link between mission and joy. And I'll put it this way. In order for you to have joy, in order for anyone to have joy, you have to have a mission. You must have a mission. 
Many of us, as we grow up, we hold on to that dream of doing something significant that will change the world, that will bring light and joy and healing and peace into the world and make things better. Some people, you know, that's how you chose, maybe some of you, that's how you chose your major in college. And maybe now you're a teacher and you're like, I'm a teacher and I can't even pay the bills. Why do people become teachers? It's not to become rich, I'll tell you that. I don't know any teachers who are, who are just flowing with money. People who become teachers, missionaries, these kinds of jobs that, that are intended to, to serve, they do it, why? Because they want to make an impact, because they want to change lives, they want to change the world one life at a time. See, but here's the thing that kind happen in our culture. We live in this culture, in this society, where we are told, you know, that's nice when you're a kid to be idealistic and have these dreams of making a difference and changing the world and doing something great. But once you grow up, it's time to grow up. you got to pay the bills. And in the real world, all that really matters is taking care of yourself. And it, what, ma- what you should really focus on is your own personal fulfillment and your own comfort. And a lot of people buy into that. And what they do is they, cha- they trade the mission of changing the world and they trade it for a mission of personal fulfillment. They trade in the mission of changing the world and saving the world, making a difference, and they they change it in for a mission of personal fulfillment. And so many people, that's why in our society there are all these people who have got a lot of stuff, but they've got no joy. And the reason they lack joy is because they don't have a mission. You see, if you're only living for yourself, here's the tragic irony of that. The more that you focus on yourself and you focus on how can I make myself happy, how can I fulfill myself, the less happy you will be. The more significance you place upon your own life, the less significant your life will actually be in the big picture of the world because the only thing you're living for is yourself. The only thing you have worth living for and dying for and fighting for and worth sacrificing for is yourself. And at that point, you have become the definition of insignificant. And that's why it's a tragic irony that people who place so much emphasis on how can I make myself happy, how can I fulfill myself, they will never be happy and they'll never be fulfilled. In fact, diminishingly so. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, we read this incredible statement. It says there that for the joy that was set before him, it's speaking about Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross and he despised its shame. Jesus endured the cross for you. He bore your sin. He bore hit your shame. He took it upon himself on the cross. But what this verse does is it kind of takes us behind the scene. It's like one of those, you know, extras on the movie that you watch, right? And you watch, okay, how was this made? What was happening behind the scene? How did they develop this scene? It takes us back to the moment when the father came to the son and said, I'm sending you on a mission. I'm sending you on a mission. It's going to be a mission to bring truth and life and salvation into the world that is broken and hurting, that is suffering under the curse of sin and death. I'm going to send you on a mission and you're going to go there and you're going to save them and you're going to redeem them, but it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. You're going to take all of the suffering, all of the curse. It's going to fall upon you and it's going to crush you. It's going to hit you and it's going to tear you to pieces. But as a result, people are going to be saved. Lives are going to be transformed and redeemed. And you are going to bring that to them. And so Jesus, as he considers this mission, he considers both the cost of this mission, but he also considers the reward of the mission. And it says that his heart was filled with one emotion. And that emotion was joy. 
He was filled with joy. It was joy at knowing the final outcome. That is what carried him through the difficult times. That is what made him able to endure the cross and, and bear the shame. It was joy. And so Jesus says, I want you to have my joy. I want you to have my joy. And so here's how I'm going to give it to you. I am going to give you my mission so that by you taking part in my mission, that you will share in my joy and that my joy will be fulfilled in you. Here's the thing, you need a mission. It is a fundamental human need. It is a basic requirement for joy. If you want to have joy, not only do you need to have hope, but you need to have purpose. You need to have a mission. And the mission of God is the only mission that is truly, legitimately worth living for and dying for and fighting for and sacrificing for and even giving everything for. This is the mission which alone actually has the ability to save the world. And God, this is the mission for which he gave everything. And God wants to use you. Isn't this incredible that he would use you and me to bring truth and life and salvation and redemption into the world? And as a result of that, you know what will happen? Joy. Joy. Joy to those who receive it. Joy to God and joy to you as you carry out this mission. That's the purpose, the reason for this mission. But let's talk a minute about the problem with this mission. You see, the problem with this mission is that a lot of people, especially nowadays and in our society here where we live, they look at Christianity and they say, you know, that's a perfectly nice religion. You've got a lot of nice teachings and great principles. I love the community aspect of it. That's great. And I love the focus on marriage and, and family. That's all very good. And I, and I love the fact that you, you know, champion moral, moral good and you put others first. Those are all great things. But I'll tell you the one part that I don't like about it. It's that it's so narrow. It's so narrow, right? And how presumptuous is that? That you would think that you were on a mission from God to save the world by making other people believe what you believe. People look at that and they say, that's so narrow. You know, why do you have to try to convert the world to believe in these things? When it comes to mission, I mean, it's okay. I, I'm fine with you going out and building houses for the poor or providing for the less fortunate or, or helping people in far-off countries to have a better life. But why do you have to try to make people believe what you believe? Even some Christians would say, you know, hey, I love learning about the Bible. I love taking communion and sacraments. I love worshiping. But that whole part of Christianity where we're always being told to go out and, and tell people about our faith, ah, I don't like it. But see, here's the problem with mission. The problem with mission is that in our society, in our day and age, in our world, it is considered arrogant to claim that you know the truth and that other people should believe what you believe. That's the problem. Now, part of the reason uh, why people have lost the sense of mission as they become adults is because society tells us that it is futile. It, it's a waste. It's a waste of energy to try to do these things, to try to change the world. The idea that you can go and save the world and change the world is at best naive and at worst terribly arrogant. And so rather than trying to save everybody else, you should really just worry about yourself and your own life and leave everybody else alone and let them do whatever they want. See, the problem with mission, though, is that, is that you cannot be a Christian and not be on mission. See, that's the problem. It's very unpopular. It's sometimes uncomfortable, but the problem is that you cannot be a Christian and not be on mission because the command to be on mission comes straight from the mouth of Jesus. If we are followers of Jesus, then don't we have to take what he says seriously? And here's what he says, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. Go into all the world. He says, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, teach everybody to obey all that I've commanded you. That's straight from his mouth. 
And to be a faithful follower of Jesus means you can't just ignore what he says and do the parts that that are comfortable and that you like. To really practice Christianity requires that we be actively engaged in pursuing this mission. This is the essence of what it means to follow him. And that's the problem of mission. You see that it isn't popular, but yet it is an integral part of Christianity. To remove mission from Christianity is to remove its very heart. You can't do it. And so that brings us to the third question. We see the reason for this mission is joy. We see that we need a mission and that God has given us the greatest mission. We see that the problem, though, is that it's integral to Christianity. You can't take it out, no matter how unpopular it might be to some people in the world. But here's the third question. Then, If that's the case, how do we engage with the mission of God in the world? So here at Whitefields, you know, we have a mission statement and a vision statement. The vision statement is kind of the, the big picture. What do we exist to do? The mission statement is more of how do we intend to, to accomplish that mission. So our vision statement is this, to build and foster a passionate, engaged, and spiritually healthy Christian community to influence and bless Longmont and beyond. Our mission statement is this, to make disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching the Word of God, engaging in the mission of God, and raising up leaders. Now you'll notice in there that we use the word engage two times in those statements. We like that word because here's the deal, the word to engage, here's what it means. It means to participate in. It means to be involved in. I'll tell you why we like that because we don't want to be people who are only interested in collecting information about God or knowledge about the Bible and just storing it away and having awesome notebooks that are filled with all kinds of notes and being able to play Bible trivia. That's not our goal. Our goal is that we want to be those people who take these things, learn them, and then live them out and put them into practice. We want to be participating in what God is doing. We want to be involved in what God is doing in the world. And so what does that look like? How do you actually go about doing that? Well, I'll give you a few ways, but let's stick to our text here. First of all, what is the nature of this mission that God has called us on, that God gave to Jesus and Jesus gave to us? Here in John 17, Jesus shows us two aspects of this mission that God gave to him and that he gives to us, two aspects of his mission. In one sense, it was a mission to show, and in another sense, it was a mission to save. So both those are important. It's a mission to show and a mission to save. First of all, Jesus says his mission is a mission to show. In chapter 17, verse 6, he says, Father, the reason you sent me into this world was to manifest your name. In other words, to show people who you are. And he says, that is what I've done. I've shown them who you are. I've taught them and I've helped them to see your truth. See, one of the ways that we engage in the mission of God practically, here's how we do it, by showing people who God is, by manifesting his name to the world. We do that by our actions, by the way that we live. We do that by loving our enemies, by forgiving those who sin against us, by showing people grace, by displaying radical generosity. We do it by serving others and coming alongside those who are in need, by displaying grace and mercy and love and truth. And see, we do these things in the name of Jesus. As we do that, we are displaying the heart of God. We're showing people this is what his kingdom is about. In this world, the kingdom of this world, only the strong survive. The strong trample on the weak. You would never forgive someone who sins against you. You'd hold that grudge and make sure that you get them back. But in God's kingdom, the greatest is the one who is the greatest servant. In God's kingdom, the greatest is the one who forgives, the one who loves, the one who shows mercy and grace, the one who is generous. And so one of the ways that we do mission is by showing people 
the heart of God through practical acts of service and generosity. You know, we just finished up a big service project here at church through this back-to-school project that finished up last week. That's a great example of what I'm talking about here, showing people the heart of God and the culture of the kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' mission was a mission to show, but that's not all it was. It was also a mission to save, and you can't separate those two. It was a mission to show, and it was a mission to save. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, For this reason I have come, to seek and to save those who are lost. Here in John 17, verse 19, he says this, For their sake... I consecrate myself that they might be sanctified. In other words, Jesus didn't only come to show people the heart of God. He also came to save sinners and to save those who are lost. I want you to imagine with me somebody you love. And in this person you love, you see the symptoms of a a sickness, a sickness that you yourself used to have. And you know that this is life-threatening. And you know what had to be done in order to heal you from it. But this person doesn't recognize that they're sick. They won't acknowledge it. They don't think anything is wrong. So what are you going to do? Well, you would start by telling them your story, wouldn't you? You would tell them, I I had that sickness. I was there. I was there. And you would tell them about your experience and what had to be done in order for you to be uh, saved from that sickness. And what would you do? You would begin to persuade them. Why? Because you love them. And that's what evangelism is all about. When you really care about someone and you know the truth about their condition and you know the truth about how they can be saved, that's what evangelism is about. It's about when truth and love collide. It's when those two meet, mission is the result. If you have truth, but you don't have love, there can be no mission. But if you have love, but you don't have the truth to help the person, then there is no mission. But when love and truth collide, mission is the result. When those two come together, you can't help but be on mission. And that's exactly what a Christian has in Christ. We have truth and we have love. And when those two come together, you can't help but be a person on mission. That's why we must evangelize. We must share the message of the gospel with the world, the good news that because of Jesus, because of what he did, that people can be forgiven and redeemed and reconciled to God and their life can extend beyond the grave. The thing about news is this. It needs to be shared. It needs to be conveyed. It needs to be passed on. It can't just be displayed in character. So in this sense, it needs to be communicated. Romans chapter 10, Paul the apostle tells us this. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call upon him in whom they haven't believed? And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless they are sent? And there's that word again, remember. Sent, mission. It's really important to see these two essential aspects of the mission of God, showing and saving. Showing and saving. Here at Whitefields, that's exactly what we desire to be and to do. We desire to be people who are engaged in Jesus' mission, to show people who God is by our actions and to proclaim the gospel in words so that people can believe and be saved. But there's one final aspect that I'd like to point out to you about what it means to be engaged in the mission of God. Return with me in your minds here to this scene. Jesus is praying over his disciples at the Last Supper. Look at these people. Twelve men, only a few years before this, they, none of them had met. I mean, a few of them were, were brothers, but most of them had not met. Even if they had met, many of them would have never gotten along outside of this setting. They had differing views on politics. They were from different socioeconomic classes. And they had been brought together, though, over the last couple of years around this man and around this mission. 
And now Jesus is sending them out on this mission. But I want you to see this. He's not sending them out as individuals on their own individual mission. He's not sending them out even with their families. Okay, this is your family's mission. No, he's saying, you guys, together, I'm sending you out as a group. This group later became known, and Jesus named it this way. He said, this is the church. He told them that he was going to establish it. He said, I'm going to establish it, and the gates of hell will never overcome it. And the church, this was Jesus' big idea, a new entity, a community of those who followed him and believed on him, who were being redeemed. And it would be the church through which Jesus would carry out his mission and his purposes in the world, even into our day. Several years later, there was a man named Paul the Apostle, He was used by God to start a lot of churches as a missionary. And he wrote a letter to one of those churches, the church in the city of Philippi. And here's what he wrote. He wrote this letter from jail, by the way. He'd been imprisoned because of his Christian faith and his work as a missionary. And so from jail, he had a little time on his hands and he wrote a couple letters. And here's what Paul wrote to the Philippian Christians from his jail cell. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come or see you or I'm absent, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind you are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What an intriguing idea that is. What does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? Have you thought about that? What is a life that is worthy of the gospel? Well, he tells us a few things to answer that question. He says, well, well, this is what I want to see, to know that you are living worthy of the gospel. He says, when I come, when I get out of jail and I visit you guys, this is what I hope to see. I hope to see that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, a life worthy of the gospel is a life characterized by two things, unity and mission. Unity and mission, this mission that God has called us to, I want you to understand this. It's not just your own individual mission. It's something that we are called to work together for, to link arms corporately together. As believers, we're called to link arms, stand side by side, pool our resources together and strive together for the faith of the gospel. And you know what's interesting about this letter that Paul wrote from prison to the Philippians? It's known as the epistle, the letter of joy. Now, isn't that Not what you would expect, that somebody writes a letter from jail and the whole character of the letter is one of joy and happiness and expectation. He's awaiting a trial where he very could, he could very well likely lose his life and yet in spite of that, he reminds us overwhelmingly his life is characterized by one thing and that is joy. And here's what that reminds us of. There are two things that you need in order to have joy. Number one, you have to have hope. And number two, you have to have a purpose. You have to have a mission. And in Jesus, you have those, both of those things in the greatest form ever possible. The message of the gospel is that you and I are so flawed that God himself had to die for you, but that God loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. He had to, but he was glad to. That's the message of the gospel. And when you really understand that, when you let it sink deep down into your mind and into your heart, it does a few things within you. First of all, it gives you a deep sense of rest and peace. Rest from that sense of having to try to justify your life and and prove your existence because he has said that you are accepted and justified in him. But along with giving you a sense of rest and a sense that that deep sense of peace and rest in your heart, there's another thing that it does when you understand the gospel. It lights a fire under you. It, It stirs you up. It sends you out to go and share this love and hope with others so that they might have the joy that he has given you so that his joy might be fulfilled in them as well. See, what it means to be a Christian is that God has brought you in 
and that he has sent you out. Church matters, friends. Church matters. It matters to God. It matters to us. And it matters to the world. And so may we be people, may we increasingly be a church that lives out God's purposes for us as his people engaged in his mission in the world so that joy may abound. Amen? Lord, we thank you that when you looked upon us and you considered this mission that the Father was sending you on, that you were filled with a sense of joy. Lord, thank you that you want us to have that joy that you had because of this mission. And so, Lord, we want to be those who say today, here I am, send me, wherever that may be. Whether it's here where we live, whether it's halfway across the world, whatever it may be, Lord, we want to avail ourselves to you because as we look to the cross, we see a love of God that was willing to give up everything for us. And it makes us want to give our lives for the one who gave his life for us. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't have that joy, who doesn't know the joy either of being on mission with you or of even being saved and rescued and embraced and redeemed by you. Lord, I pray that all of us would leave here today having taken that next step in our relationship with you so that joy may abound in our hearts and in your heart. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.